Well, thank you for all coming, coming and I, uh, I must express my deep gratitude to the people who travel long distances. We have speakers from Hong Kong, Prague, and New York, and Pittsburgh, as well as from all over England. Some of them uh, are traveling on the way at this moment and will be joining us during the course of the day. We are at the moment a small group, but I think I'm confident in saying that seldom has such a collection, perhaps never, of um, Shakespearean thinkers been gathered under this roof um, since David Garrick dined here alone. And um, we're fulfilling David Garrick's vision to bring the thinkers of the world to this temple, this secular space that he built immediately opposite the Chapel Royal, the uh, church, the parish church just along the road, which you will pass on the way to lunch at the Vale Inn, was the royal um, uh, uh, church for George III, who worshipped every, every Sunday there. So it's a very significant statement on Garrick's part to build this secular temple opposite the Anglican church um, and to balance the king with a different kind of sovereignty here with Shakespeare. This is Roubilliac's famous bust of Shakespeare. It's a very special space and we're very honoured to be here at Rupert's Invitation as part of the ongoing project to celebrate Garrick's vision. The temple is almost exactly the same age as Hegel. They were, of course, um, I think just three years uh, separates them. So the temple has uh, withstood the centuries in the same way that Hegel's thinking has withstood the centuries and with the same um, sense of history that brings us together here. Uh, we will be thinking about Hegel's sense of history. We hadn't imagined when we first mooted the idea of a series of philosophical events, which we've already initiated with conferences on David Garrick, of course, Shakespeare in Scandinavia, and then last September, Shakespeare and the Enlightenment, that the formal launch of the series with this event on Hegel to be followed by events later in the year on Marx and Nietzsche would coincide with such a turning point in history as we are living through at this moment, when it does indeed seem that history has turned backwards. We turn today to a series of papers that turn Hegel's sense of history around, and none is better to do that than our first speaker today, Jennifer Bates. I ask you to welcome her today and to begin this conversation in which I am convinced she will be the cause of wit in others too. Thank you all for, and thank you Richard for inviting me. This is truly a huge honor for me. Um, I have a handout because I'm lecturing on Hegel and it serves you well to know what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> so on one side is the outline of what I'm going to talk about and on the other side are the two passages that I will be... Um, Why are you doing that? So uh, this paper has four parts. Part one is a few words about Hegel and Shakespeare. Then for the rest of the paper, I do what I enjoy most, discuss a Hegel text and a Shakespeare play to see how they illuminate each other. Today, I'm reading The Logic of Measure in Hegel's Encyclopedia Logic and Greater Logic alongside Measure for Measure. What this reveals is that each text is an initiation into the execution of the logic of measure in both senses of execution. The dialogue between Abhorsen and Pompey about the hangman's mystery represents the whole. I would like to just add that Shakespeare's Measure for Measure is a brilliant play, and as a Hegelian Templar, I do indeed stand here in this Garrick's temple to praise Shakespeare for it, uh, and possibly Middleton 
but I don't want to enter into that in this paper. So, um, so part one, Hegel and Shakespeare in general, this is from my book, it's about Hegel and Shakespeare, so I thought I would just update you on, the, on what he says. Uh, Hegel writes, quote, what creates a universal lasting and profound dramatic effect is what, really, what is really substantive in action, i.e. morality as specific subject matter and greatness of spirit and character as form. And here too, Shakespeare is supreme, end of quote. There are many such passages in Hegel's lectures on aesthetics. Hegel uses Shakespearean drama, excuse me, to elucidate various theories about tragedy and comedy, collisions and characters, as well as more philosophical views about the unity of particularity and universality and about the final shapes of art in history. What stands out is first, Hegel's repeated celebration of Shakespeare's ability to develop his characters as quote, quote, whole people, entire and unique. And second, that Hegel places Shakespeare at the pinnacle of artistic development in history. So let me explain that last point. In Hegel's aesthetics, uh, Hegel's aesthetics is a view of art from ancient Zoroastrianism to artists of Hegel's time. His view is that art is the objective expression of the consciousness of a people. Art developed over time in relation to developments in consciousness. Initially, art and consciousness developed from immediate unconscious forms of symbolism, then through increasingly self-conscious complexity. Uh, finally, art and consciousness reached the point where art in the modern era, in comic drama in particular, self-conscious art self-consciously dissolves itself. It dissolves into philosophy. The reason is that uh, only philosophy can cope with the dissolutional characteristic that the act of thinking has in relation to the object that it thinks. Philosophy alone is versatile enough to accommodate the dialectical self-overcoming nature that consciousness has always been, but that it did not know itself to be until Hegel's time. But as far as art goes, according to Hegel, Shakespeare is supreme. He is because comic drama is the highest form of art and Shakespeare is the best at comedy. So when Hegel asserts that Shakespeare is the supreme dramatist and an example of the finest when it comes to comic drama, he's making Shakespeare the supreme artist in the history of art. My favorite line of Shakespeare's, about, of, uh, uh, my favorite line of Hegel's about Shakespeare uh, is the following, and it shows why he puts Shakespeare in such an exalted place. Quote, the more Shakespeare proceeds to portray on the infinite breadth of his world stage the extremes of evil and folly, all the more does he precisely plunge his figures who dwell on these extremes into their restrictedness. Of course, he equip equips them with a wealth of poetry, but he actually gives them spirit and imagination, and by virtue of and by the picture in which they can contemplate and see themselves objectively like a work of art, he makes them free artists of their own selves." End of quote. This passage is truly remarkable. Hegel is asserting that Shakespeare succeeds in making his characters come to life so much that they actually reflectively design themselves. In this respect, Shakespeare is accomplishing in art what Hegel views to be the highest requirement of philosophical scientific knowledge. Quote, uh, scientific knowledge uh, Scientific cognition demands surrender to the life of the object, or what amounts to the same thing, confronting and, ex and expressing its inner necessity." End of quote. Now, turning to the rest of my paper, I have one comment. According to Hegel, art does not take the full measure of reality, uh, but nor does the logic of measure. So when art dissolves into philosophy, it is not into that logic of measure that it dissolves. Indeed, that logic of measure is found in art because art, as a form of absolute spirit, encompasses all the levels of logic. So what, it, what is it about philosophy that is neither merely art nor merely logic that allows it to be the measure of reality? Hegel's phenomenology shows us the answer to this, and I conclude, conclude my paper with the assertion that that work is Hegel's hangman's mystery. The hangman's mystery shows us how to separate what is essential from habitual measurements an absolute measurement takes into account underlying essential mechanisms such as rope work, medicine, law, sexual reproduction, artistry, and logic, and our public and our public reflection on the meaning of these. This is how we come to grips. Begriff. So, part two: Hegel's logic of measure and its relation to measure for measure. Introduction. In Shakespeare's Measure for Measure, the above-mentioned development of a character through his or her self-portrait is less accomplished by individuals than by the relation of individuals to others, both inward and outward. The mirror in which the characters see themselves developing 
is reflecting in many directions at once because the play develops ways in which individuals are embedded, literally, sexually, figuratively, and reflectively. These real and reflected embeddings are suitable for examination in the light of Hegel's definition of spirit, of Geist, as the dialectic of the I that is a we and a we that is an I. In this play, we find, a logic, we find a logic to the embeddings, the logic of measure. The execution of this logic proves to be its own execution in the sense of he a Hegelian double negation. As the logic of measure is completed, that logic gets sublated, i.e. as one takes measures and then executes them, the logic involved in doing so is negated, transformed into a more complex reflected logic called essence. Essence marks the end of this kind of logic, but not of logic as a whole. Each new logical determination is one which encompasses the earlier logic by spiraling it out of its contradictions into a more comprehensive circle, a better grasp, or to use Hegel's term, begriff. So when I say there is an execution of the logic of measure, it is a geistification of it, a making of it into a different, recollected, reflected kind of logic, that of essence. Being, through measure, executes its immediacy. There is resistance to applying Hegelian sublation to Shakespeare. Howard Cagle argues that Shakespeare brilliantly misrecognizes negation and so slips out of Hegel's begriff, out of the grasp of any level of Hegelian logic. In this way, uh, Cagle argues, Shakespeare is able to create magnificent monsters of nothing. That's his, uh, his uh, expression, Cagle's expression, rather than just determinate negations. Elsewhere, Cagle cites Levinas's rejection of any Hegelian logic in Shakespeare. For Levinas, quote, Shakespeare serves as a means of deflating any speculative resolution, any capture of nothingness in the service of being. End of quote. One of my mentors, Northrop Fry, whose insight into Shakespeare equals his love of the educated imagination and whose off-seen interest in the work of Hegel inspired me to write my book, would also probably disagree with my using Hegel's logic to, under, uh, to understand this play. In Fry's essay on Measure for Measure, he explicitly rejects any underlying logic. But I'm gonna make my case for I hold that the way logics of measure affect our judgment is the problem being worked out in this play. The play, like Hegel's text on the logic of measure, exhausts given logical possibilities by bringing them to their limits. In this sense, Hegel's and Shakespeare's texts are each a stage in both senses, a scaffold for the execution of the logic of measure. So measure in Hegel's encyclopedia logic and the greater logic. First, the context. It's always good to know what, where one is in the book, in the Hegel book. The encyclopedia logic is composed of three doctrines. The first, the doctrine of being, evolves into the second, the doctrine of essence, which then evolves into the third, the doctrine of the concept. Being evolves into essence because, quote, the truth of being is essence, end of quote. Essence prior to this moment was only imminent in being. Essence needs to be recognized as posited, reflected truth, even, though even then essence lies more obviously beneath the veil of appearances behind the curtain or cloth. The problem at this point is to figure out sufficient grounds for appearances. It is, up to this, it is up to this problem, up to the realization that essence lies behind appearances and not its solution that Shakespeare's play in his closing scenes delivers us. Let us go over the details of that logic in Hegel. So measure. According to Hegel, the definition of being exhausts itself in categories of quality, quantity, and measure. Measure is the last moment of being before we make the transition to essence. The three moments of measure are qualified quantum, real measure, and the measureless. Measure is arrived at because of the way that quality and quantity are conceptually interdependent and appear to change into each other. Consider the color blue. It is first a quality, but if one compares it on the spectrum of intensities, one isolates it as this particular intensity of blue. This one is number, and that fact initiates the concept of this blue being a quantum on a scale of intensities. But that quantum is only defined by the numerical position it holds in the potentially infinite degrees of blueness. The spectrum of blues continues from, say, light to dark. This one blue is discrete, so this one blue, this quantum, is only really itself this one blue in relation to other discrete quanta. Each quantum is actually, therefore, a qualified quantum, a number which is a quality and vice versa. John Burbage, the Hegelian uh, from Canada, summarizes, quote, we have reached the concept of measure because we found that quantity and quality are linked together conceptually. 
Once we thoroughly analyze quality, we end up talking about continuity and discreteness, the features of magnitude. And when we examine quality in its turn, we come to ratios, which define a certain qualitative limit to a quantity. The act of combining quantity and quality we call measuring, end of quote. Just not to scare you, I'm gonna get rid of my footnotes, which I'm not reading. <laughs> there, my paper's not quite that long. There we go. Uh, to understand a qualified quantum, we all can also think of water in its various states, gas, liquid, and frozen. Each state is further down the scale of temperature. Water in relation to gradations of temperature exhibits quality, qualitative differences, like knots in a rope, writes Hegel. Hegel's other favorite examples are from ancient philosophy, plucking hairs from a man's head, at which plucked hair do we call him bald, or the pebbles added one by one until we say there is a heap, or the donkey with a straw added each mile until it collapses. So back to our example of blue, the qualified quantum is a measure, a ratio of numerically identified intensity over what is more or less blue on that scale of degrees of blue. Hegel writes, interestingly, quote, the alteration of the quantitative is like a ruse with which to catch the qualitative, end of quote. But the measured qualified quantum as a ratio of, say, lightness to blueness is also measured against other ratios. Not only is it the measurement made in terms of the blueness as against lighter or deeper blues, but also as against more purple blues tending in the direction of red and greener blues tending in the direction of yellow. And similarly, the quality frozen uh, in water is a different ratio of temperature to substance when the substance is carbon dioxide. If I wish to define this blue in terms of one quality's degree, say lightness, then that define, defining quality is an arbitrary decision this can be a problem when we use one ratio habitually to measure other cases that are actually quite different because the rela related differences are dismissed. Hegel claims that we get past the arbitrariness of the decision to use one measure as the measuring stick to define others by looking for the real measure, something inherent in the things being measured. So instead of a ratio of temperature to substance, we could look, for example, at elective affinities, uh, for example, in chemistry or in music, the attraction and repulsion within chemical reactions, or the harmony of a note in a chord tell us what re measure really is. The attraction or repulsion creates a rule that is not just decided upon. Chemists posit compound elements of given qualities and quantities in a, me a medium, and that medium allows attractions and repulsions in hearing the elements thus deposited to come to life according to some sort of elective affinities in them. By some old contracting of nature, they settle their similarities and differences. Likewise, a musical note can have affinities, be harmonic in chords from different key signatures. This method establishes real measure, real contracts, not just arbitrarily decided ones. Ratios emerge seemingly on their own. Real me measure, as an old contracting, has a dark hidden side by which the attraction or repulsion of harmony or harmony seems to be affected, and a revealed side that we see in the chemical reaction or hear in the harmony. The dark side is as Goethe has his characters in his novel, Elective Affinity, described. A chemical reaction that seems mysteriously lifelike in that certain elements leave their original combination to be with others. Quote, one has to have these entities before one's eyes and see how, although they appear to be lifeless, they are in fact perpetually ready to spring into activity. One has to watch sympathetically how they seek one another out, attract, seize, destroy, devour, consume one another, and then emerge again from this most intimate union in renewed, novel, and unexpected shape. It is only then that one credits them with an eternal life, yes, with possessing mind and reason. End of quote. That was from Goethe's Elective Affinity. The revealed side is that which we can see, and this, uh, uh, is that the revealed side is that we can witness this hidden attraction and repulsion as it takes place in the compound. The event, if not its causes, is available for all to see. So it is as though the chemistry of elective affinity has a dark corner and a public place. Thus there appears now to be something both mysterious and, uh, mysterious and physically necessary about even the emergence of this one blue. But we must move past real measure, too, because the unseen darkness of its origins and the multiplicity of interpretations about its mysterious creation that are provided by the viewers suggests a measureless expanse of ratiocinations explaining its existence. The original contract, the truth of the blue, lies hidden beneath the veil of blue. Thus, considering real measure as something posited and reflected, Hegel claims that we no longer seek its measurements, but instead the sufficient ground for blue, the essential definition of blue behind the veil. Essence is more comprehensive than measure, but it is not the end of the story of the encyclopedia logic, not the complete expression of what is necessary for a god to think <coughs> up blue. 
However, we need not follow the development of Hegel's logic any further. Our purposes today are met in the logic of measure and its transition to essence. So see the transitions, of the transitions of the three moments of measure not yet posited, posited, and sublated. So not to disappoint, let me cite a long passage from Hegel. The following is his summary of, uh, uh, from his greater logic of moving from the transitions of measure and into essence. And it's on your, the backside of your handout. Quote, measure is only in itself or in its notion essence. This notion of measure is not yet posited. Measure, still as such, is itself the immediate unity of quality and quantity. Its moments are determinately present as quality and quanta thereof. These moments are at first inseparable only in principle, but do not yet have the significance of this reflected determination. The development of measure contains the differentiation of these moments, but at the same time, their relations, so that the identity with which they are in themselves, which with which they are in themselves becomes their relation to each other, i.e. is posited. The significance of this development is the realization of measure in which it posits itself in relation with itself and hence as a moment. Through this mediation, it is determined as sublated. Its mediacy and that of its moments vanishes. They are reflected. Measure, having thus realized its own notion, has passed into essence." End of quote. One way to see this written en gros in the play is ethically. Qualitative and quantitative complexities of sexual desire pass into their ethical essence, marriage. In his article, Hegel on Marriage, Zizek saves Hegel from appearing to be advocating such a simple ethical logic in the state, although Hegel says enough in that strain to let himself be misunderstood in that way. But importantly, Zizek makes uh, a point in his conclusion. He says, uh, the point is not so much that one should not ignore Hegel, but that we should only arrive at the position at which one can afford to ignore Hegel after a long and arduous working through Hegel. End of, point, end of citation. Part three, how Hegel's measure plays out in Shakespeare's measure for measure. Shakespeare's me measure for measure plays constantly with measuring substitution, the balance of justice, and meeting out of punishments. Uh, much has been written about this. What I want to pick out uh, pick up on are the dialectical embeddings and how these play out the logic of measure and its transition to essence in the play. The play passes from qualified quanta to real measure to the measureless and then to essence. These moments have their corresponding transitions, which I draw from the Hegel passage that you have. So the play begins with the not yet positive measure given qualitative and quantitative measures. The Duke remarks on the quality of the man who will replace him. Quote, Angelo, there is a kind of character in thy life that to the observer doth thy history fully unfold. End of quote. The Duke departs, saying, so fare you well, to the hopeful execution do I leave you. End of quote. Angelo is as true as blue. The essence of a Duke is imminent in him. His personal measures are given and good, the execution of the law, the measures he will take equally good, it is assumed. The complication begins with the first measure Angelo takes. It is against Claudio, the bearer of the quality of an adulterer. Claudio is, as such, a qualified quantum of adultery and an exemplar of the law's measure against it. Isabella's intervention reveals uh, uh, Angelo to be just as much a qualified quantum of sin. Indeed, all three of them will turn out to be cases of quality people revealed as qualified quanta and subject, therefore, to the arbitrariness of the decisions as to what ratiocinations uh, determine their measurements. So one, the, the law is a qualified quantum. Hegel and Shakespeare show that ethical life goes in four directions simultaneously and repeatedly. The vertical axis of transcendent and embodied self and the horizontal axis of self and, other, uh, and others are in a four-way dialectical dance. Qualities and quantities are measured along these axes in complicated intertermining ways. Imagination, it will turn out, is central to this axiologic even after we learn to think through it. At the risk of sounding like Polonius, let me explain. Here is the quality and quant uh, quantity of the law. The qualitative unity of a principle, for example, that one must not commit adultery is a law for all. The unity of this law is the quantitative aspect and its specificity as a law against adultery in particular is the law's qualitative aspect. 
the one law and its many cases can be thought numerically as one versus many or qualitatively as transcendent versus embodied, just as law in general is differentiated into many different laws. Each law is qualitatively both alike in that each is a law, but also different in that each is a different law from others. The same goes for the cases under each one law, the qualitative aspect of likeness, the cases similarities to each other is what legitimates turning one particular case into the exemplary execution of the law, the one to re represent all cases under an inducted, uh, one inducted principal performance. Enter Claudio. Claudio stands for the crime and its punishment. He is the qualitative unity representative of the many others guilty of like crimes. His punishment stands for all cases and warns against others executing th that kind of crime. He is the principled case, the law's instantiation, and the inducted exemplar. The measure taken is the exec execution of the law, in which, uh, which in this case means the execution of Claudio. This measure interprets the law, but the law could be interpreted differently. Claudio is not just the bearer of the quality of an adulterer. His other qualities are actually those by means of which his is one case among so many others like it, by means of which he is not just discrete or qualified in a spectrum, but is this particular case. A qualified quantum, as a qualified quantum, he hangs, as it were, between the general law and the particularities of his crime, its circumstances and differences from others. He hangs between signifier and signified of the law, between the letter of the law and its execution, as the ostensible example of their universal and necessary relation. Angelo. Angelo's inner and outer qualities and his measured ratiocinations on the basis of them cause him to be attracted to, the, uh, to Isabella's apparently similar ratio of purity to embodiment and her equally measured speech and behavior. But his contact with her shifts this, his self-measurements. He finds himself to be qualified in different ways. He says, quote, she speaks and to such sense that my sense breeds with it. And later, what's this, what's this? Is this her fault or mine? The tempter or the tempted? Who sins most, huh? Not she, nor doth she tempt, but it is I that lying by the violet in the sun do as the carrion does, not as the flower, corrupt with virtuous season. Angela's qualities, spoken of so highly at the beginning of the play, have become different, measured according to other ratios. Angelo comes to see this in himself. But this occurs while Isabella is trying to get Angelo to take a different measurement of Claudio. Claudio shares the quality of adultery with Bodhouse visitors, but his intention to marry the woman, Julietta, is not shared with them. Angelo took, his account, uh, took into account only qualities which all the adulterers share, reformulating these into a general prohibition, the exemplary case of which is Claudio's. This is an induction of the most superficial kind rather than the application of a transcendentally just principle. Angelo fails to see that Claudio is a qualified quantum and that Angelo's measurement of him is therefore indifferent to other ratios. Isabella shows this to Angelo by revealing to Angelo his own capacity for breaking the law. She thereby gives him cause to use mercy rather than the strictness of the law. Isabella effectively shows Angelo he is judging himself a qualified uh, quantum by means of decided arbitrary ratios. The truth of his being, his imminent essence, she argues, is otherwise. Isabella. Isabella also proves to be not just a simple ratio of virgin to vocation, a ratiocination by which she has decided to qualify herself in one way at the expense of other ratios. Her encounter with Angelo reveals to her that her own self-measures are qualified in other ways. Her ideas about mercy bring this out. But to show this, we need to move to the next moment in Hegel's logic of measure. For in that moment, Angelo and Isabel move from claiming immediate reasons or ratios, measures that to them appear to be givens, to positing these measures. Let me quickly summarize so far. Hegel writes that essence is imminent in measure but has to be developed out of it. Angelo and Isabella, in their initial austerity and transcendent sense of rule, show this to be true. Even as value ratios and sexual couplings run rampant around them, essence they each judge is imminent in all those measures. But the essences to which Angelo and Isabella cling, rule of law, sanctity of soul, are not mediated yet and so yield only contradictory qualified quanta. The shift mediating these happens in executing these measures. Two, the execution of measures, positing real measure, law and mercy, are posited ratiocinations. We recall from the above Hegel passage that, quote, the development of measure contains the differentiation of these moments, but at the same time their relation, so that the identity which they are in themselves becomes their relation to each other, i.e., is posited. The problems of executing measure arise because of the vertical relation between 
the, uh, the top-down a priori principles and the bottom-up inducted a posteriori principles, as well as horizontal tensions between likeness and unlikeness of cases. Thus, Isabella's and Angelo's embeddedness as two cases among other cases disrupts a purely legal or religious view. Incidentally, this was prefigured in that the Duke introduced Angelo as one who can rule not because of divine ordinance, but because he knows measure. That is, the Duke made clear that Angelo's judgment, while ostensibly inscrutable, is imminently scrutable. I Isabella's vocation and her idea of mercy is likewise privy <coughs> to interpretation. Let us follow her case. She discovers that mercy does not descend from on high any more than Angelo's authority does. Mercy, like power, is contingent upon ratiocination. Mercy at first appears to descend, as Portia in The Merchant of Venice says, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from above, etc. Uh, however, it is actually relationally dependent on our recognizing that we are all sinners and that ours is one case among others. Mercy toward this sinner in particular is discreet and its application subject to one's discretion. A case of mercy is a qualified quantum, isolated out of many cases in the continuum of, of sins. Thus the vertical axis is dependent upon the horizontal axis. Along the horizontal axis, Isabella reasons with Angelo that he has with him the same sinner. He is like her brother. Angelo's attraction to Isabella reveals this to him. His response to, is to show Isabella the same about herself. She must not be allowed to keep her transcendental purity. He embeds her top-down view by making her have to choose between qualified quantities. Mercy becomes a contradiction in her own life. She must choose to be merciful to herself against her brother and thus allow his death, or be merciful toward her brother and allow herself to be damned. I think that Angelo's action against her is less extortion than payback. He makes her suffer her own internal, her own necessary internal contradiction with regard to her concept of mercy in retaliation for the fact that she did not abstain from showing him his internally contradictory self. He forces her to see that her mercy is embedded in interpretation and the economy of relations. In other words, Angelo forces her to execute the contradictory measure that she tells him he must execute. It is likely because he realizes the impossibility of taking the high ground or of judiciously dispensing mercy that Angelo gives over entirely to sin. He realizes that law and mercy are decisions, each a ratio po posited by the executor of, uh, of the measure. He says, say what you can, my false overweighs your true, end of quote. Isabella is equally self-contradicted. Her mercy cannot admit exceptions, otherwise it is not a transcendental principle, but it, do does, it does not rain down, but it uh, does not rain down on bods and kings alike. It rather picks and chooses from below, horizontally, as the individuals who would be the objects of mercy define to whom it should be applied. Mercy is a measure that is posited. In sum, transcendental and inductive principles, the top-down and bottom-up and side-to-side -side of like and unlike are put into tension. The tension comes from positing measures rather than taking them as given. But that tension was already inside those measures by virtue of their specificity as cases, as ratios of law and of mercy. We can see that something more is needed to connect the elements, to contract them meaningfully. What is needed is real measure. Isabella finds this in her alliance with the friar. So three, the Duke's execution and sublation of measure from posited real measure, elective affinities, to the measureless, to essence. So one, the old contracting. The Duke appears to be the most essential. He puts on the friar's habit and stands back to reflect on the measures to be taken in his dukedom. He goes behind the cloth, as it were, trying to get some perspective on how, how to execute measures properly, but his imminent essence must also develop. He gets drawn in and executes various, various embeddings. In positing these real measures, or his real measures, the Duke thinks he is performing an old contracting. Cracked against vice, I must apply, he says. With Angelo tonight shall lie his old betrothed, but despised. So disguise shall by the disguised pay with falsehood false exacting and perform an old contracting. There are lots of contract, there are lots of contractions in this play. The Duke wants them not to be the contraction of syphilis or contracts with the devil and those that are okay to happen in wedlock. But we might ask, what does the Duke take to be the basis of this old contracting? The execution of the old contract seems to involve a version of what two centuries later would be called elective affinity. As the Duke gets underway with his plan, he thinks himself a Pythagorean of sorts, as if one could use the measure of music to execute properly according to the divine order of the spheres. He says this to Mariana when they meet. Tis good, though music oft, oft hath such a charm to make bad good and good provoked harm, end of quote. 
the measures of music perform pre-reflectively pre what the Duke sets out to do reflectively. In this sense, the Duke is chiming in about the principles of elective affinity, which he now, as a kind of chemist, will use to settle matters. Mariana agrees with the friar's plan because she is pre-contracted to Angelo. The Duke friar encourages, a Duke as friar, encourages her, quote, the justice of your title to him doth flourish the deceit, end of quote. Facing setbacks, the Duke, I'm just gonna call him the Duke friar while he's in disguise. The Duke friar remains confident about his insight. He assures the worried provost that all difficulties are but easy when they are known. The Duke Friar sees himself as in charge of the law, both the letter of the law and how the law will pub be publicly interpreted. For example, he's he lays out his plot to have Bernardine's head given to Angelo instead of Claudio's. He and in that, uh, in that uh, plot, he re reassures the provost that it is all right to execute this plan. He says, yet you are amazed, but this letter shall absolutely resolve you. Everyone falls in with his schemes, even as the plot twists and turns. He promises Isabella, if you can pace your wisdom in that good path that I, will show, I would wish you'd go, you, and you shall have your bosom on this wretch, grace of the duke, revenges to your heart, and general honor. Isabella replies, I am directed by you. The bed trick happens in secrecy, in a dark corner. The duke takes himself to be doing good chemistry and letting sexual and social harmony develop. This is, completely, this is completed by embedding it all in the public eye. Two, measure is reflected and thereby sublated. The play executes the logic of measure. From measure to essence, the measureless public eye. The, Duke, the Duke's return and reunion with Angelo is staged in public. The Duke says to Angelo, we hear such goodness of your justice that our soul cannot but yield you forth to public thanks for running more requital, blah, blah, blah. Give me your hand and let the subject let the subject see to make them know that outward courtesies would fain proclaim favors that keep within." End of quote. The transition from measure to essence is initiated with a handshake. The embedding of one hand in the other is the sign of the Duke's trust in Angelo for all the public to see. But the play's audience knows by this point that the, this embedding is pure show, it's execution a sham, since the Duke and the audience of the play, though not the public in the play, know the hidden truth. The handshake represents to us the fact that the truth of the matter is no longer the outer measures, but inner essential grounds, that hypocrisy is a genuine problem. The outer does not reveal the inner. Indeed, the inner may even be the opposite of the outer. This is strange. Thus, when Isabella comes forward, she says, most strange, yet most truly will I speak. At this point in the play, we are past measure, even posited real measure, and have entered the realm of reflected being, of essence. Isabella declares against appearances, quote, that Angelo's forsworn, it is, is it not strange? That Angelo's a murderer, is it not strange? That Angelo is an adulterous thief, a hypocrite, a virgin violator, is it not strange and strange? She goes on to claim that this is all as true as it is strange, nay, it is 10 times true, for truth is truth to the end of reckoning. The Duke and Angelo reply that she is mad, but she persists, tis not impossible, but one the wickedest caitiff on the ground may seem as shy, as grave, as just, as absolute as Angelo, even so may Angelo in all his dressings, characters, titles, forms, be an arch villain. His clothing hides the truth. B, comedic resolution, the truth of being is revealed from behind the cloth. Eventually the Duke, pretending to see some sanity in her assessment, states that her madness hath the, um, hath the oddest frame of sense, such a dependency of thing on thing as e'er I heard in madness. But Isabella will have nothing to do with theories of reason, being a con connection of thing to thing. That would, be, that would belong to the mere logic of measures, and she is past those ratios. She replies, O gracious Duke, harp not on that, nor do not banish reason for inequality, but let your reason serve to make the truth appear where it seems hid and hide the false of seems true. Isabella wishes to ground the ground to be revealed in the contradiction of appearances, not for beings to not for beings or things to be strung along in a pre in pre sorry I'll say that again Isabella wishes the ground to be revealed in the contradiction of appearances not for beings or things to be strung along in a pre-reflective syllogism Isabella tells the the duke and the crowd everything she knows but the duke replies sarcastically this is most likely to this she replies oh that it were as like as it is true then Mariana makes her speech removing her veil she was the hidden woman to Angelo uh, she was the woman hidden to Angelo. The truth of the dark feel of her body uh, was she. 
the she, it turns out, is someone other than the one he thought he was embracing. That she was to him a qualified quantum, its other qualities unimportant in the act. The real measure of their union, the posited bed trick and the fact that that posited act is now reflected publicly, changed the contraction. Angelo is now embedded in a publicly recognized matrimony. This change of measure into essence occurs in the measureless, in the dark, but it also occurs in the public's reflection on the contract. But are these not monstrosities? The mechanism of one vagina being as good as the, ne the next in a dark corner and the securing of a marriage contract without regard for everyone's elective affinity, because the cases of elective affinity were Angelo's for Isabella and Mariana's for Angelo, so the chemistry does not add up in the marriages. How do we get past such monstrosities? Um, it was supposedly through educating the imagination that the shift from the measureless to essence occurs in the play. Mariana says, quote, this is the body that took away the match from Isabel and did supply thee at thy garden house in her imagined person. Like Mariana, the Duke Friar removes his hood for the public to see. He and Mariana act as if essence can unproblematically emerge from behind the veil, as if one can become, through dark chemistry and public contraction, a woman with a name and a husband, or a duke with authority and insight, essential people grounded in social norms. Uh, but we know that this, is just educate, this just educates the imagination into social habits. However, by means of this ruse of the cloth, Shakespeare shows, as does Hegel, that we always ratiocinate what the essence is, even when we go behind the curtain ourselves. The lesson is that it is therefore advantageous to reflect on our logic and its limits. The play has been a stage for the logic of measure. All this embedding was not just in order to return to Aristotelian ethical norms from a more re uh, modern religious occupation with a transcendent measuring stick, law, self, soul, God. It is about the necessary dialectic between these posited polarities, subject, object, many, one, unity, plurality, like, unlike, contradictions by which we move from measuring beings to reflecting on them as appearances whose grounds must be discovered. The short dialogue between the hangman and Pompey about his profession encapsulates this as the central theme of the play. So part four, this hangman's mystery executes the measure for measure. So interpreting the dialogue. Uh, I'm amidst Shakespeareans. I probably don't need to read this, but um, in case there is somebody who's never read this, I'll read it. Um, the provost introduces Pompey to Abhorson, the hangman. The provost says, Sirrah, here's a fellow will help you tomorrow in your execution. He can plead his estimation with you. He hath been a bawd, a porson. A bawd, sir, fie upon him. He will discredit our mystery. Provost, go to, sir, you weigh equally. A feather will turn the scale. Pompey, pray, sir, by your good favor, for surely, sir, a good favor you have, but that you have a, a hanging look. Do you call, sir, your occupation a mystery? A porson, aye, sir, a mystery. Pompey, painting, sir, I have heard it say is a mystery, and your horrors, sir, being members of my occupation, using painting, do prove my occupation a mystery, but what mystery there should be in a hanging? If I should be hanged, I cannot imagine. A porson, sir, it is a mystery. Pompey, proof, a porson. Every true man's apparel fits your thief. Pompey, if it be too little for your thief, your true man thinks it big enough. If it be too big for your thief, your thief thinks it little enough. So every true man's apparel fits your thief. My first observation is that according to the Norton Shakespeare editors, the mystery here means profession. The origin and etymology of mystery indicates that in Middle English, it is mystery from Latin mysterium, from Greek mysterion, from mystes, initiate. So I take the conversation to be an initiation into why it is a profession to be a hangman. Uh, so my second point is about the word true in a person's line, every true man's apparel fits your thief. Truth here means his moral goodness, but it can also mean the truth of his being, the essence of the man. So how should we interpret the sentence? The Norton editors comment, quote, Abhorson implies that the thief assumes the character of an honest man by stealing his clothes. He also suggests an analogy between the thief and the hangman who was awarded the clothes of his victims, end of quote. Gary Taylor offers a similar reading. First, he argues against the idea that these lines are corrupted or that lines are missing. And then he interprets, quote, a porson means only that a thief will go by any name an honest man could go by, that any bad man can appropriate to himself all the apparent virtues of a good man. Taylor concludes, in this play, evil frequently assumes the pose of virtue, most obviously in Angelo's case. 
This and other cases in the play present examples of how specious logic contributes to a, th a central theme of the play, the seeming virtue of vice, end of quote. Taylor concludes, quote, a passage that has long seemed both textually, cor textually corrupt and obscure is thus seen to be not only funny, but revealing. Taylor and I agree that this line is key to the play, but we disagree as to the meaning of it. The statement, every true man's apparel fits your thief, is a truncated syllogism. I see a different syllogism of equal, uh, in fact, a reflected syllogism of equal, if not more weight, than the one presented by Taylor. It runs as follows. The truth of a profession is its essence. The first difficulty that the initiate must learn is to separate habit logic from essential knowledge. In this case, the initiate must learn to separate the issue of appearance from what really matters to the mechanics of hanging. The initiated must uh, knows to grasp the necessary qualified quanta and that the proper grasp is not by means of measurements such as the man's clothing or his moral standing. One needs to grasp the, rev the relevant me measures of the man to know where to tie, th where, where to knot the rope. Whether the man is a thief or a true man and what his shirt size is are irrelevant to his hanging. Hanging is like Bernardine, immediate and indifferent to justice and quality of life and like Bernardine, uh, possessing a mechanical nature, lo natural logic of its own. The conclusion here is that quantity and quality are exchangeable on the surface of things, but that the laws underlying, underlying a hanging are essential mechanics known in the mystery of hanging. Knowing those essential qu laws qualify one in the profession. This is evident to Dr. James Barr in his 1885 article, The Mechanics of Hanning, Hanging. I'll just read wonderful. Um, the mode, this is Dr. Barr, the mode of carrying out the sentence of the law, be hanged by the neck until you are dead, has usually been left to the discretion of the hangman, the law taking no cognizance as to what is to be the, appro the proximate cause of death. Call Craft invariably ad adopted the short drop of about two feet and a half, and if I may judge from some specimens of his ropes, which are still to be seen at Kirkdale, death must have been produced by a slow process of asphyxia. Marwood adopted what is generally known as the long drop, of which he was supposed by many to be the originator, though it was used for long before his time, both in Paris and in Ireland. Barr continues, having now briefly referred to the different modes of hanging which have been adopted in executing criminals, we will be better able to judge which is the best and most practical method when we have considered the various causes of death. Professor Tidy says that in hanging, as in drowning, death does not always take place in exactly the same way. Thus, it may result from asphyxia, cerebral hyperemia, uh, a, com a combination of asphyxia and, and apoplexy, syncope, injury to the spinal cord, and pneumogastric's neuroparalytic death. Dr. Barr might be a latter-day abhorson when he writes, quote, when the law requires the death sentence to be meted out at the end of, of a hempen rope, the dictates of humanity demand that all the details should be carried out in decency and in order and with a minimum amount of suffering to the culprit. And from this standpoint, I shall treat the subject." End of quote. The fact of being condemned to hang until dead does not tell us about how to execute the hangman's judgment. It does not give the measure for that measure. The reason a person's line is the key to the play is that it warns us not to rely on unreflected given logics, that is, not to rely on ready-made transferable ratios, habits, since these fit the true man and the thief alike. He points us to the need to find the essence of one's profession. In this sense, the entire play can be summed up as pimp meets mechanic. The play shifts from all the characters pimping their values to characters positing real physical measures for measures. However, mechanical contractions are not adequate for what is being executed in the play. Pompey offers a solution and completes a story by showing that utility is bound up with values. Pompey's last remark to Abhorson concerns what the ratio of the cloth to the size of the man means to the true man and to the thief, respectively. That is, he is reflecting on how the meaning of the cloth is posited by these men. He is thus mulling over the question, what is the essential meaning of the cloth? In Hegel's text, cloth is a metaphor for separating appearance from essence. Quote, the immediate being of things is here represented as a sort of rind or curtain behind which the essence is concealed, end of quote. In Hegel's Phenomenology of Spirit, we learn that the intelligible laws that lie behind the curtain of, the of perceptual experience are laws of our own making. He says, quote, it is manifest that behind the so-called curtain, which is supposed to conceal the inner world, there's nothing to be seen unless we go behind it ourselves, as much in order that we may see, as that there may be something behind there which, we, which, which can be seen. According to Hegel, end of quote, According to Hegel, if we were to know the essence, we must, like the Duke, go behind the cloth ourselves and reflect on our positing of the laws underlying appearances. 
As we have seen, though, the Duke only knows about the old contracting in the restricted sense of his community's ethics. Hegel's point and Pompey's riff about clothing brings us deeper into the old contracting. The play, like their words, is an initiation into the construction of experience and not just mechanical or social, religious or linguistic habits, but reflection on these as positive measures. Shakespeare's play takes us to the point where we know that essence has to do with our putting it there. But the play intentionally goes further. That is why we see at the end of the play Isabella's, um, I'm, I'm sorry, but the play intentionally goes no further. That is why at the end of the play, Isabella mulling over the meaning uh, of a person's intention, that is why at the end of the play we see Isabella mulling over the intention, the meaning of a person's intention prior to the person's execution of the intended act. A person's intention is the ground of the act, but if the act is never posited, never executed, the intention remains buried, a buried essence and not subject to the measure of the law. That's what she holds. I doubt Shakespeare wanted us to feel at ease with this measurelessness. I do not feel, we do not feel that the problem of essence is thereby settled. An uninhabited bad intention, like forced marriages, leaves us hanging. According to Hegel, after the transition from measure to essence, we are not at the end of the rope. We don't stop like the Duke uh, with essence as norm or like Isabella with essence as the buried mysterious truth of being. According to Hegel, the logic of essence must now be gone through and comprehended. Justice requires this. We must be initiated into the mystery as a profession. Our phenomenological profession is to realize the depth and breadth of the public spirit. From our point of view in the front of the play's curtain, there is much behind it that has been left unexamined. However, in my book on Hegel and Shakespeare, I conclude that Shakespeare in his romances, like, in Hegel's phenomen like Hegel in his Phenomenology of Spirit, achieves a kind of salutary absolute standpoint, what I call absolute wit. In Hegel's account, the absolute standpoint is the post-Protestant philosophical interpretation of a man hanging between thieves. His metaphor for it is Golgotha, the place of executions. The Phenomenology of Spirit is therefore Hegel's hangman's mystery for initiation into it and its relation to Shakespeare's romances, I invite you to read my book. <laughs> to conclude, Measure for Measure is a play in which the logic of measure is developed and executed within its restrictedness. I think that we can agree that here too, Shakespeare is supreme. Thank you.